So wait, you had your headphones in, but not plugged in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to make a meal of this. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 6th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hi, Sarah. What's going on? Uh, Not much. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. And on the phone from Los Angeles is 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hello, Neil. (laughs) Hi, Jeff. I wanted to talk really quickly about my favorite thing to have happened in sports, possibly ever, over the weekend. (laughs) Wow, that is... That's a... I know, right? This is, I'm maybe over delivering that. (laughs) Wait, under delivering? Over promising. Over promising. Never write that. (laughs) Well, you be the judge listener. Who, boy. Uh, Over the weekend, Cleveland Indians uh, pitcher Shane Bieber tweeted out his Topps baseball card on which he was called Justin. I have never identified more with the writers slash editors of the Topps baseball cards because the moment Shane Bieber got into the league, every time I notice him or see him or see his name, I immediately start humming a Justin Bieber song. And it's it's a real problem. So I'm totally with the Topps people and... That was bound to happen. Sorry, dude. They printed the card with Justin Bieber. They printed the card, and it said on the in the back. It yeah, like, like, it didn't refer say... to him as Justin in a like sentence. Right. On the back of the the card. blurb said Justin. Oh, oh. So it didn't have the bold display font that said Justin Bieber, which is where my head. Went. Which would be amazing if they just owned that. But I did love Topps's response. Whoever runs their social media is is, is uh, on the ball because they responded. Is it too late to say sorry? <laughs> so good. <laughs> really amazing. <laughs> Do you remember that Gary Pettis card where Gary, he was on the Angels? I'm going to guess like 83, 84, where he didn't go to the photo shoot and he sent his nephew, who was like a teenager, and they just printed the card. <laughs> amazing. And it said Gary Pettis. And wow. It's, it's a child. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm, I'm Googling this right now, and it is a literal child who's like, hey, it's what's up? It's just a child. Gary Gary Pettis, we're going with it. Hey, I'm Gary. <laughs> I love that. I I like mistakes on baseball cards. I just think they're funny and interesting. But this one, this one was so great. And yeah, the tops response was really really good. And you have to feel for Shane Bieber because he had the misfortune of being born on May 31st, 1995, which was not that long after Justin Bieber was born, March 1st, 1994. So they are contemporaries and so he has had to live essentially his whole uh, you know, young adult and adult life with people probably mixing up. This is far from the first time someone has has mocked it. I mean, he even on Players Weekend, where you have the fun nicknames on the back of the jerseys, he he went with not Justin yeah. as his nickname uh, for, for, for Players Weekend. So this was probably already a sore subject right. with Shane. And so then now they've just kind of compounded it. There are just not that many other Biebers, right? So that's yeah. kind of a... Yeah, it's either sort of, Shane or Justin, and right. Shane is great. I mean, Shane is having an amazing season, a great young pitcher, uh, and so you know, at what point does Shane just be like, "Come on, can't, can't I be the Bieber? Can, can I be uh, like how how well would Shane Bieber have to pitch, and for how long to surpass Justin Bieber as like the canonical Bieber?" That's a good question. Whose career would he have to have? Like Pedro Martinez? Kershaw. I think he'd have to have Kershaw's career. I think he'd have to not be in baseball. Sorry. (laughs) I also think he's going to need Justin Bieber's career to take a sharp downturn if it hasn't already. Yeah, that's true. What Justin Bieber song do you think is Shane Bieber's favorite song? That's really the question that I have for him. My hot take, baby, worst Justin Bieber song. All the rest of them are way better. And yet most well known. Yeah. Let me just quickly Google a list of Justin Bieber songs. <laughs> oh, please. And I'll get right back to you. Don't pretend that you don't know all of the Justin Bieber songs. I think I'm going to go with Love Yourself. That's a good song. Because uh, <laughs> Shane Bieber should love he himself. To love himself. Uh, and stop feeling like he's constantly in the shadow of yeah, Justin. The just es- accept who you are. The ESPN headline was, What Do You Mean? <laughs> Another I mean, it's an endless trying a oh little God. too hard. Yeah. Endless <laughs> font <laughs> of, of uh, yep. puns to be had off yep. of it. Good times. 
All right. We are very excited for today's show. We've been talking about doing this all summer, and it's finally happening today. We're taking a slightly different approach. In these slow summer months, it's very easy to fall down into our rabbit holes of data. So we all thought, why limit ourselves to just one rabbit hole? So today, we're each bringing a rabbit hole to the table. We'll cover a wide range of topics. English Premier League fantasy strategies, collegiate champions in the WNBA, NASCAR road specialists, and the X Games, past and present. Jeff, why don't you start us off with our first rabbit hole of the week? Okay, so this has always been kind of a sore subject for me, that I never really quite understood why fantasy soccer wasn't a thing. You look at the impact that fantasy football had on the NFL and I really do think that like strong uptick in popularity that the NFL had in the earlier parts of the century was largely fantasy based. That's a subject for another time. Fantasy soccer is essentially non-existent. With all due apologies to ESPN who has a lovely fantasy soccer game which everyone should go sign up for. Um, it doesn't quite work and it doesn't quite make sense to me either as someone who plays fantasy baseball, fantasy football, fantasy basketball, fantasy hockey. Why doesn't the simplest of all the sports have a fantasy game that would, you know, make the, the average run of the mill game more entertaining, which is what the service of fantasy sports is. And really, frankly, um, it's quite simple answer. It's way too complicated. Let me just run through how you can score points in fantasy soccer. Uh, a goal, an assist, a shot on goal, a chance created, an appearance, just playing. Just showing up. Shot <laughs> off goal, tackle one, interception, block, clearance, completed pass, uh, then negative points for a foul, more negative points for a yellow card, more negative points for a red card, negative points for missing a penalty kick. And then we haven't even gotten to the goalies, which are scored with clean sheets, only giving up one goal, making a save, stopping a penalty kick, uh, a cross claimed, a cross punch, a smother, a misplay. A Categories I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I don't, how do you, what's a, how do you these, smother? These all factor in to fantasy soccer and no one really knows. I watch a decent amount of soccer. I, I don't really know if I could identify everything on that list, let alone keep <laughs> a running tally in my head. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it so that every player, all, you know, 22 guys on the field are, can accrue points. So it's a full team and it's mimicking the actual conceit of the game where 11 guys contribute to a win or a loss but it doesn't work it's too complicated no one likes it that's the problem and i fixed it that's the that's the headline here it was a long preamble i fixed it oh you buried the lead there yeah really (laughs) you fixed it i fixed it several years ago with a few of my friends and relatives and our producer tony will attest to this because he has since adopted it i'm spreading the gospel of the new fantasy soccer and it's so simple all we did was we, we, we tally it offline. We don't have a server or a you know internet provider who provides this service for us. We just count goals. You just count goals. That's it. Whoa. <laughs> That's it. That's all anyone cares about. And guess what? It's unbelievably fun. You just have to disregard you know the guys playing defense. Now, that being said, you can have a big league you know, with a lot of players drafted, where occasionally defenders who score get involved or midfielders who score more often than, you know, like defensive holding midfielders, they'll, they'll, they'll be involved, they'll be drafted. And guess what? It totally works. So I'm encouraging everyone to, to copy this very simple model that we created and have been now been doing it for every English league season. We're actually drafting our league right now. Um, we do it for the World Cup, which is super fun. We did it for the Women's World Cup. We've done it for the Euro. We've done it for the Copa America um, <laughs> because it's just constantly fun. You can redraft every time you have a special event. You could do it for the Champions League. There's been talk of that. And all you do is have to pick the goal scorers. Paired so down, Jeff, d- like the game itself. You're welcome, <laughs> well, d- America and the world. <laughs> 
But Jeff, doesn't this isn't this a little one dimensional? Doesn't it sort of downplay the contributions of most players in soccer and sort of over reward the the few, the proud, the the goal scorers, and 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 reward just looking out for your own scoring at the expense of everything else? Uh, you could say that, and if you really have a strong philosophical problem with that, I encourage you to play. Uh, fantasy soccer in its current form where you count smothers and cross punches (laughs) well that that was going to be my question jeff is like are the best players in the um hyper complicated espn do those track with what people consider to be the best players or is it just like a third thing where it's like well this is really complicated and it still doesn't make sense who it thinks are the best players so like why would you play it of course, like a player, you know, like Luka Modric or something who who contributes, you know, Kevin De Bruyne or something like that. He doesn't show up as well in when it's just counting goals, obviously. But think about this. Think about NFL fantasy. Unless you're one of the maniacs in an IDP league, you're not drafting anyone on defense. <laughs> that's a good you're point. Just yeah. That's a good lumping point. that together. Uh, kickers, frankly. It's just irrelevant. I mean, I'm not even sure why kickers still exist. It's just kind of like, you know, rolling dice. Just in general or in fantasy? (laughs) Both. Yeah. Oh, in fantasy. No, I I, I don't have anything (laughs) against kickers. You know, you're not drafting special teams, guys. So it's really just you're not drafting offensive linemen. So it's really just the skill positions there. You know the scoring positions. So it's not that different. It's true, and touchdowns are massively overvalued in fantasy football, which we'll probably talk about at some point anyway. Yeah. So it is similar to the soccer situation of like whoever just happens to be the the team's designated shot taker, uh, striker, whatever uh, is the one that gets the majority of the goals. Like being a, a running back who gets the ball in goal line right. situations. It's sort of funny. It's like that anti-analytics uh version of fantasy sports where it's like we don't care about anything except the end result we don't care about actual value <laughs> yeah. expected goals yeah. whatever it's inverted <laughs> 538 it's 835 835 <laughs> nice so who have you drafted for this year i took um the guy on arsenal who i can't readily pronounce his name uh pierre emmerich Oberyang, Yang, whatever he's great He's going to score a lot of goals for me. Jeff, how do you identify who are the, the, the players to pick in this? Is it just trying to see, like, what's the team's history of having, like, one designated high goal scorer versus splitting it up among multiple players? Do you, do you handcuff in this? Like, you, you take, you know, a couple of forwards from one team and, and uh, hope that between both of them they do a lot of scoring, the scoring of one Messi or something? What's the strategy? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think in that respect, it's very similar. You know, you you can handcuff, you can get, you know, if you are worried that Harry Kane's going to get hurt, you can get his backup. Um, you can also get a little worried if you have too many guys on one team, you know, which happens in fantasy football, too many eggs in one basket. So, yeah, it's a lot of the same principles carry over. How many guys do you draft? Fourteen. I mean, you get to a point where like five or six goals is pretty good. You know, when you get to the end, um, you're just looking for, you know, whatever numbers you can pad to it. Do, do you have any? Do you have anyone from Tottenham? That's the real question. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Wait. I'll get one for you. Thank you. Uh, that'll be my next. That'll pick. be good. Yeah, that'll be great. I'm looking at at Tony Chow's uh, team in his league, and he has two Arsenal players and no Tottenham players, and I can tell right now that his team's going to be terrible. So it's exciting. I will also say that Tony's version of uh, this brilliant system includes assists which is an option i have no problem with that if, you, if you're interested i'm a purist i'm a goals only <laughs> you're a purist league, so he, no assists <laughs> well i was gonna say jeff are you worried about stat creep like when you add assists is it kind of a slippery slope towards smothers or are you confident that you can kind of stem the tide you're saying we add assists one year and then the next year someone's like what about smothers yeah right i mean it's really a natural progression i feel like yeah, how many steps away don't you think Which espn you- when they first started the the epl fantasy they were like let's just start let's just do goals this was like 1997 or something like that and then lo and behold years pass and suddenly they they do have the the goalie punches and and smothers i mean i think a problem is like when you're watching a lot of these things aren't clear you're not like oh i just got a, a chance created that equals not being fun 
<laughs> so it's really all about the eye test, or as uh, longtime hot takedown listeners will know, as the gaze, mm, yeah. the general assessment, yes. zero evidence. Right. But in this case, in this case, it's like fun. some evidence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Am I enjoying myself? Right. That's yeah. the evidence. Yeah. So this is a very American approach to this game. And and that's my rabbit hole here on Rabbit Hole Week. And I think it's more of a public service announcement more than a rabbit hole. No, that's good of you. Thank you for bringing that to the masses. We appreciate it. I think it's going to sweep the country. Yeah. The world. Don't stop at the country, Neil. Okay, so let's move on. And I'm going to tee you up, Sarah, uh, for our next rabbit hole. Well, thanks, Neil. So I have been thinking about something that uh, Lindsay Darkangelo said last week on the podcast and something you've written about too, Neil. We were talking about the parity in the WNBA and how there are only 12 teams with 12 players each. So the WNBA is really the cream of the crop in women's basketball. So I was looking through the roster of our very own New York Liberty and I realized that to start the season, the team had four players who had gone to UConn. Speak for yourself, by the way. I'm an Atlanta Dream fan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I meant our as in the city we are in, but I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, lump you in with other New Yorkers. Or, or, Sarah, you could have said our as in you and I. See, I'm a Liberty that's, fan. That's what I meant. Our, you and I, Jeff. <laughs> you and Jeff against the world. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so to start the season, the Liberty had four players who had gone to UConn, Tina Charles, Bria Hartley, and Kia Nurse, who are playing with the Liberty right now, and Kia Stokes, who is sitting out this year. Each of those UConn alumni had won a national championship. And yes, I did use the word alumni there on this podcast. So given the select company of the WNBA, I wondered how many players in the league were also national collegiate champions. And lo and behold, it is a ton of players. Of the 146 players on rosters right now, 33 have won a national title. That's 23% of all WNBA players. That seems like a lot. <laughs> How much of that is UConn alone? Well, a lot. <laughs> that um, It is a lot of, of UConn players. So not, not all UConn players, especially players from recent who have recently joined the WNBA. So New York is one of four teams to have four college champs on the roster. The others are the Chicago Sky, the Minnesota Lynx, and the Seattle Storm. Only one team in the league is without an NCAA champion, and that's the Indiana Fever, though Tierra McCowan came very, very close with her Mississippi State Bulldogs losing in the final to Notre Dame in 2018. So the other thing about those former UConn players on the Liberty is that, of course, they didn't just win one title. Kia Stokes won three. Charles Hartley and Nurse each won two. Across the league, the 33 national champs won a combined 54 NCAA basketball titles. And only one team can top the Liberty for the most titles won. It is the Seattle Storm with 10 of the Connecticut alumni on that team, Brianna Stewart won four, of course. Kalina Mosqueda Lewis won three, and Superd won two. The Storms' Crystal Langhorn also won a championship with Maryland in 2006. So I haven't looked at the share of national titles among players in the NBA, but by definition, it can't be as high. The same number of players win a title each year for college men and women, but there are substantially more players in the NBA than the WNBA. So there's just obviously going to be a lot more of those titles in the WNBA. Well, is that kind of the the only factor that explains it? Or are there other kind of theories out there about it? Is it the fact that it seems like a higher concentration of the best players tend to kind of accumulate on the UConn type teams in women's college basketball and then those teams seem more reliable to win the championship then like obviously Duke in on the men's side has been getting a lot of top high school players uh, probably as much as UConn at their peak yet Duke doesn't win the national championship I guess maybe it's easier to convert high school recruiting into championships at the women's level. I think that's probably right, especially in the slightly more distant past. Like, I think more recently we've seen the influx of parity in the league, and that's getting a little closer to men's college basketball. Um, But before then, you really saw talent concentrated on a few teams. And not just UConn. Tennessee has had a you know ton of players in the WNBA. Baylor. Baylor, yeah. Um, especially like those earlier Baylor teams. Um, 
you know, this year, obviously, there's a lot too. But so I think you see that more and more. But even like, so the Notre Dame team that, you know, was in the final four this year, they had five players drafted. So it's not just the teams that win, but then Notre Dame won last year, the previous year. So those players, all those players drafted this year had won a title the year before too. So you see, I mean, I think there is a lot of talent concentrated on a few teams still, though that is, um, you know, becoming more diffuse a little bit. It's interesting too, because men's college basketball seems like sometimes shows flashes like it's going in the opposite direction. Like you think back of those Villanova teams that won recently and they weren't exactly like NBA farms I mean I think a couple of those guys are spread around the leagues but they're not stars whereas like the stars tend to be the one and dones and they only get one shot at it and then they're just cash and checks and maybe that's a big part of it too uh Jeff is that you you only get one chance if you're a top NBA prospect to get that national championship, whereas on the women's side, they stick around for all four years in a lot of cases. Yeah, or at least three years. We have seen a few more um, women's players leave after their junior year, but still most players are, are sticking out all four years. So, yeah, I mean, I think you see you see more teams, more college teams getting – uh, their women drafted in the WNBA now. So I, what I would really should do is look at how this has changed over time and see if it's actually a smaller share now than it used to be. That would be my theory, but I'd have to dig into that to see. Because teams like, say, I don't know, Iowa State had a player, my girl, just Bridget Carlton. Just to pick Carlton. a team at random. <laughs> yeah, just a random team. Uh, Bridget Carlton was drafted by the Sun. Megan Gustafson of Iowa, to throw out to another Iowa school, <laughs> was also drafted. So there are, I mean, it's not just UConn players, obviously, being drafted. I also kind of wonder how, uh, if you did this for other sports, like I think about Alabama in the NFL and before them Miami. I mean, there was a stretch of, of years where at least some Miami player made the Pro Bowl or, or played at least in the NFL uh, for, for many, many, many straight years. And so some of those factories, when they were actually winning national championships, might up it for football, you think about, but it won't be necessarily even at like, quarterback it'll be more like offensive linemen and defenders and running backs in some cases too if you think about Alabama right yeah I mean some schools have been known for certain positions some of those national champion schools in football but there are just so many more players in the NFL that it would be hard to get you know that many concentrated from one school it seems like there's also just fewer like high school women's college basketball stars who just kind of go to I don't know, like, you know, why did Kawhi Leonard go to San Diego State? Probably because he's from the area. But, um, you know, go someplace locally or go because, you know, they had a parent who went there and and sort of these kind of seemingly random places they choose college basketball rather than just all going to Duke, which, let's be honest, many of them do anyway. Yeah, it'd be fun to look at, like, the McDonald's All-Americans and see how many of them pick non-powerhouse schools both on the men's and women's side well yeah like i mean john morant was not a mcdonald's all-american but you think about him you know he sort of fell through the cracks and ended up not at a even power conference school and then all of a sudden he's the second overall pick in the draft in a way that it seems like hasn't happened as often anywhere near as often on the women's side yeah i think that's right well didn't della della don go to um delaware yeah yeah that's probably the closest um, analog. She's the Joe Flacco of the WNBA. <laughs> she's, she's I'm sorry elite. I said that. That is such an insult. She's way, way, yeah, so way much better, better than, than Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco. <laughs> yeah. The stat I was groping for earlier, by the way, about Miami was that they had a streak of 149 straight weeks uh, in the NFL where at least one former Hurricane scored a touchdown. That was uh, the stat. Interesting. So nice. that could contribute, I think, also. Yeah. I think... The the most prevalent school in the NFL, though, is Georgia. Yeah. And they haven't won too much. They've come close. <laughs> so anyway, that was sort of fun. So if you're watching a WNBA game, which you should definitely do, you're probably seeing someone on that court who has won a national championship in college. All right. Before we move on, let's have a quick word from this week's sponsor, ButcherBox. Summer is here, and you know what that means. It's barbecue season. Every month, ButcherBox delivers humanely raised 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, 
heritage breed pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box with all of your favorite cuts. And with free shipping, ButcherBox makes getting high-quality meat with no added hormones or antibiotics easier than ever. To make it even easier, ButcherBox has a ton of awesome recipes and resources on their website that will help you bring out all the flavor of each unique cut of meat. This month, ButcherBox is offering new members $20 off your first box, plus two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon when you sign up at butcherbox.com slash takedown. That's right. In addition to all the great meat you get, ButcherBox is knocking $20 off your first box and throwing in an additional two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon when you sign up at butcherbox.com slash takedown. That's butcherbox.com slash takedown. Neil, you want to start us off on our next descent? I would love to. So NASCAR's uh, Monster Energy Cup Series was at Watkins Glen over the weekend, and Chase Elliott won the race. Uh, It was his second straight win at Watkins Glen. So uh, what's Watkins Glen, you might ask? Well, it is a road course about two and a half miles long uh, in upstate New York uh, next to the Finger Lakes, Seneca Lake specifically. It's very wonderful up there uh, this time of year. I highly recommend it. Quick endorsement of the Finger Lakes. (laughs) Yeah, the Finger Lakes, (laughs) top notch. Uh, So what makes Watkins Glen interesting is that it is a road course, and that's pretty uncommon. So of the 36 races in the uh, Cup Series this season, only two are run on proper road courses, uh, and that would be Sonoma, California, which was won by Martin Truex Jr. in uh, June, and then Watkins Glen. Chase Elliott won this weekend. There's a little bit of a third one. It's a roval course. It's a hybrid between a road and oval run mm-hmm. at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. They'll That's have that not one a in, real word. <laughs> in on. September. So, so that one, you have to be able to negotiate the turns and then also drive along the speedway part. The infield has a road course in the middle of it. So NASCAR, there's kind of a long-running joke or dismissal of it that all you have to do is make left turns. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you just write down, turn left four times on a piece of paper and duct tape it to the dashboard, you'll be a top-notch NASCAR driver. That's how driving works, That's how driving works. So uh, Because they they all drive on ovals for the most part, uh, and these are the high-banked. You know, Daytona, uh, style tracks or, you know, the, the brickyard, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and everything in between. They even have little short tracks that are still ovals, but they're, they're much, uh, shorter. So you can't go flat out on the gas the whole time. But the point is, it's just a sequence of left turns for the most part, aside from these road course races. And so for the longest time, especially as they came up into the nineties, teams started realizing, you know, we have guys that come up through the system and they'll race the Craftman trucks, uh, which are these heavily aerodynamicized pickup trucks that also run on ovals. And then they'll move up to the Bush series, which I guess is now called the Xfinity series, which are smaller versions of the NASCAR uh, cars, but they're still running on ovals. Basically, you have to go outside of the whole feeder system of NASCAR to find people that have have sort of grown up and the whole time made left and right turns and negotiated uh, these road courses, which is a very different discipline of racing. Not necessarily superior, uh, although a lot of Formula One snobs might look at it that way, but it's just different. And so uh, they came up with this idea especially lower tier teams that needed to qualify uh, just to be able to pick up some points or just to be able to appear in a race to qualify for a subsequent race uh, in, in the season that they needed somebody who really knew their way around one of these road courses. So they would dip into things like sports car racing, IndyCar, occasionally failed Formula One drivers, but these types of drivers that uh, would show up just specifically for the purpose of driving on one of these road courses, uh, and they were not in any other way, shape, or form associated with the team. They were ringers. And that's where you get this idea of road course ringers, uh, guys that would just show up for like the two road course races a year, do their NASCAR thing, compete, at least qualify, uh, and, and then uh, never be heard from on an oval uh, ever again. And so uh, 
I was interested in this because the road course ringers have they had their heyday in the 90s and the 2000s, but they've kind of disappeared from NASCAR racing for the most part. So I went back and I looked at the Watkins Glen race going back in five year intervals going um, in uh, back to 1994. So 94, you had five. Uh, racers who could be identified as road course ringers. These were people that didn't race in the primary schedule, and oftentimes these were their only races of the year. You had five of them in 1999. You had three in 2004, seven in 2009, but in 2014, only three. And then this year, in 2019 at the Glen, only one racer could be classified as really a road course ringer, Josh Balicki uh, of the Rick Ware team. So he uh, is kind of the only one carrying this torch. So you might be wondering, why, where have all the road course ringers gone? Why don't they exist? Well, one of the reasons is that uh, NASCAR adopted this playoff system. So instead of just running the whole schedule and kind of counting up you know, the points at the end and considering the, the team and the person with the most points to be the, the winner, they started this change for the cup, which caused teams to have an incentive to use their top driver for every single race mm-hmm. uh, and to be able to, you know, pick up points from their full time drivers because, yeah, you might be able to gain some advantage in any single road course race by bringing in one of these ringers, but it doesn't really help you in the end go toward the championship now that they've adopted a playoff style system. And so as a result, also, the newest generation of NASCAR drivers have become a lot more adept at road course racing. You used to have in the past a few guys that were really good at it. Jeff Gordon is the all-time leader in uh, wins at road courses. He has nine in his career. Uh, Rusty Wallace won six. Ricky Rudd won six. Uh, a lot of these guys were really good drivers no matter what circumstance they had to drive under. But nowadays, you're seeing the you know, lesser drivers become good at it. And and there's a lot of theories about why that might be. Some of it is that the level of competition is higher. And and just in general, uh, there are better drivers in NASCAR now than there were 20, 30 years ago. Also, as kids, these guys have access to video games and simulators, and and they uh, have tried all kinds of racing. You know, by the time they hop into a car uh, and, and start their professional career, they've had a chance to actually learn the the ropes of road racing in a way that in the past you really wouldn't do that. You would you would drive midget cars, you would drive these modified cars, and and, and drive around on dirt tracks, and you know, kind of make NASCAR that way. Uh, now it's a lot more of a diverse path uh, of racing to kind of take you to the top. Uh, and so, as a result, now Chase Elliott is a good example of this. So his father, Bill Elliott, awesome Bill from Dawsonville, as they called him, uh, oh as a Georgian, I'm obligated to uh, to shout that out. He was a he was one of the great all time NASCAR drivers, and so Chase Elliott. He won his first race at Watkins Glen. He is one of the best road course drivers, but he's a full time driver, and I think he's uh, emblematic of a lot of the best young drivers in NASCAR right now is that instead of dreading the date in which they had to, you know, the two times or three times a year they had to drive on a road course, they relish it. Uh, and it, in, in some ways gives them an opportunity to uh, to show off, you know, skills that, that they wouldn't get to use otherwise. And so that has sort of robbed us of the road course ringer. So <laughs> RIP road course ringer (laughs) the video game thing makes a lot of sense to me but i sort of had this picture in my mind of all of the regular drivers going to like driver's ed and learning how to turn right yeah right (laughs) well a lot of little known fact they don't actually have driver's licenses in real life because they can't make right turns no that's not true they're really good at burnouts though (laughs) uh if, if you ever see that at the end of the race they do donuts in the um in the in the infield that's actually a thing they do yeah Neil, is there less passing or more passing? On road courses? Yeah. I would say less. I mean, there's only a few spots on each course in general where you can even try a pass. Uh, whereas on these ovals, you'll get a ton of passing just all the time, uh, especially at the super speedways where you can kind of get in the draft, which is where the cars in front of you are sort of blocking the air resistance uh, and, and allowing you to kind of go faster and you get into... Sort 
sort of an aerodynamic tunnel as you go through the the track. There's a ton of passing on those courses. So in some ways, it's funny in Formula One right now. We we talked about it earlier in the season. They're having sort of an existential crisis of you know, is there enough passing? Are these races too boring? You know, is it a fait accompli that Mercedes will win every single week? And should we shake things up? NASCAR, which has bled a ton of viewers and fans over the past 10 years and, and is kind of famously down, you know, 30% of its viewership from its peak in the, in the mid 2000s still in some ways is a, is a lot more exciting to watch in terms of just the sheer racing because guys can get into wrecks and uh, bump and run and trade paint and, and they can still get back out onto the course. It doesn't end their race in a way that an open wheel, if you touch wheels, oftentimes you'll just go off into the gravel pit or hit the wall and then that'll be it for you uh, for the whole race. Uh, and, and maybe so, forever, honestly. Well, in the past, <laughs> you know, Sarah is a, a acclaimed historian of Formula One deaths uh, over time. Ask me uh, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, NASCAR is geared toward more exciting racing. Will that lead to more viewership? I don't know. Uh, yeah, the road courses are sort of some of the most technically challenging, but least exciting to watch races on the schedule (laughs) awesome we will leave that there the last thing we wanted to talk about this week is the x games which took place over the weekend in minneapolis who watched it did you watch it neil i did watch some of it skateboard best trick that that's the one that i watched what was the best trick well you know uh like most skateboarding competitions uh the best trick was done by nigel houston i think he did some kind of kickflip to grind over the hubba i you know i don't know there's a lot of weird terms in in skateboarding but nigel houston he is basically like the katie ledecky of x Games skateboarding in terms of racking up gold medals uh over the years so some other highlights we had the aussie ryan williams he became the first athlete ever to backflip onto a bmx big air ramp which was the first time he'd ever done it in competition we also had mitchy brusco which is first of all in the pantheon of athlete names, Mitchie Brusco deserves his own wing. But he landed a 1260 off of the mega ramp in the skateboard big air competition. It was the first 1260 ever recorded in a, a contest, uh, and it surpassed his previous best degrees turned of 1080. Tony Hawk, of course, will live in forever in our hearts as the first skateboarder to ever land a 900 he only did it in a half pipe though he did not have the aid of the mega ramp which i feel like is like uh, a little bit you know we're looking at um the juice ball and baseball and talking about home runs or you know before that in the 90s steroids inflating stats i feel like the mega ramp is really inflating the degrees of turn uh when you have Literal children landing, you know, 1080s and and 1260s. Shout out also to Guy Curry. I think I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly. uh, (laughs) The 10-year-old Brazilian who did land a 900 in the half pipe in the X Games. uh, And he also broke the record of Jagger Eaton, which is also another fabulous name uh, for the youngest competitor in uh, X Games history. So there was a lot of history being made and a lot of great names. What happens if you're a skateboarder and your name is just like Bill Thomas? I mean, you change it, right? Do you have to yeah. change? Yeah. You have to change. I think 100%. So. You have to change I mean, we're getting to the point where like Ryan Sheckler is a boring name. Yeah, is that even? That, well, why even come out? Does and, he even skate, bro? Yeah, does he even skate? <laughs> Tony Hawk, underrated, especially era adjusted. Great name. <laughs> Era adjustments for names. Amazing name. If I was born and my name was Tony Hawk, I would have probably just started. Let's say the other Tony Hawk didn't exist and I was Tony Hawk. I probably would have just started skateboarding because you have so much pressure to do something cool to live up to that name. I mean, you can't just be like an accountant named Tony Hawk. You didn't feel any of that pressure being named Jeff Foster? (laughs) No, none of that. None of that. That's why I don't skateboard, frankly. No pressure whatsoever. There was an Imagine. NBA player named Jeff Foster. He played for the Pacers. Yeah, but he's he spelled it the other way. Didn't count. Uh, Trust he's me. He's dead to you. I've gone over this with him. Seriously? No, I've gone over it with myself talking to him. Oh, okay. Gotcha. If you ever had the chance to talk to the other Jeff Foster, you know exactly what you'd say. <laughs> I'd say, oh, you spell it the J way. Mm, all right. Kind of boring. 
This went off the rails. Much like a Nija Houston blunt slide to fakey. So there were other, there was some other big news made in this X Games with the return of esports. We're being steered toward the um, the lightning rod topic of is esports a sport? I'm happy to uh, dive in here and say it doesn't make sense because you're taking a collection of some of the most outrageous, extreme sports, dangerous sports, and you're mixing it with the least extreme, least dangerous sport. And I, I just see, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to fit the style of the... I mean, I get it. It's like a target audience thing. Does anyone have a, a, a counterpoint to that? Do, do, do we think esports belongs? Or is it just like, gotta do it somewhere? I will give voice to the counter uh, point because, first of all, esports is a sport. It Why? takes It takes <laughs> insane reflexes. Have you ever watched a StarCraft competition no. with yes. like these Korean children uh, and their fast twitch reflexes? It's insane. It is a little. It is a little crazy. I mean, I, Neil. I think you and I didn't we watch a. Oh my God, we did at the Sloan at Sports, the Sloan uh, <laughs> Analytics. We watched what MIT play Harvard. Uh, yeah, it was it was MIT Harvard, and it was it, I, it was kind of hard to. Fo- they were commentators, which I loved. So, <laughs> my my other counterpoint though goes to what you were saying, Jeff, about the the target audience. So. If we can agree, and we'll dive into the past and the history of the X Games in a second, but it was pretty, I mean, the fact that they called it the X Games, the extreme games, was like a pretty transparent uh, pandering effort to kids of the 90s to try to, you know, kind of get them, it's like, kids really like these extreme sports let's make something called the x games and we'll you know there's nothing that was necessarily your, that, was, that your was my espn 90s, 90s yeah, yeah. executive yeah, yeah. Uh, impression i hope good. you liked it i did um uh, you know all of these sports tended to have danger attached to them i will grant that uh, in a way that that esports doesn't uh but also, I think the idea of pandering to whatever is hot among the youth of the, the current generation is, like, pretty baked into the X Games. Imagine if you were holding a gold medal for doing a backflip on a BMX bike, and then at the you know end of the game ceremony, there's another guy over here who's got a gold medal for building an orc and a zerg army or something i i don't even know the terminology but it's just like imagine how you'd feel you would feel that it was cool that's what i'm trying to say i think we as olds are making a <laughs> distinction here and i think the kids that you know when the when the kid that did the bmx jump isn't doing bmx practice he's playing fortnite you know, like they see themselves the same as the esport athletes, and they probably are like, "Man, I wish I was that good at Fortnite." Maybe you're convincing me. No, no, wrong. If the kids who are playing Fortnite when they're not playing Fortnite, oh wait, no, they're still playing Fortnite. <laughs> That's true. Like there is it's no other doesn't thing. Swing both ways. It's not that I think that video games aren't important and interesting, and you know, good or whatever. It sounds like you don't think they're important or interesting. So. <laughs> or good. No, I think they're fine. It's not like I think they're the problem with society or something. I think it's fine. My 11-year-old nephew, really good at Fortnite, tried to teach me. I'm really bad at it. That's fine. <laughs> it's okay. I don't care. You sound like you're pretty salty about it, Sarah. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is I think it's legitimate. It's a legitimate thing for people, for the youth to do. It's an activity. Sure. But it's not a sport. And that's okay. Not everything needs to be a sport. I played piano. I competed in piano competitions. I didn't think it was a sport. Well, wait till it gets added to the X Games. <laughs> I'm there. Okay, let's talk about the old All X right. Game sports. Because this is really what I wanted to focus on and get into. Because there's a lot of good names also among these competitors. That is very, very true. So esports is not the only questionable or controversial competition in the history of the X Games. There have been some amazing uh, entries in X Games history. Uh, Let's start with aggressive inline skating. 
Is so there not, is there any other kind? I I don't I guess. <laughs> That's a really good question. So, aggressive inline skating was started by hockey players in Minnesota in the 80s. That seems right to me. <laughs> who wanted a way to train in the off season. They developed an inline skate with a more developed boot to accommodate higher impact tricks. It was first included in the 1995 X Games with street park and vertical ramp events. Uh, of course, it reached peak popularity with the Disney Channel movie Brink in 1998, which I feel <laughs> yeah, like we should all go home and watch right. tonight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, this is a great note from our producer, Grace Lynch. The movie Brink coined the term soul skating, those who skate for the joy of it rather than the riches and glory of inline skating. Well, you know, there are a lot of those <laughs> to be had in inline for, skating. For sure. In terms of aggressive inline skating movies, I've always been more partial to Airborne, um, but continue. By 2005, aggressive inline skating had been dropped from the X Games due to a decrease in popularity, which is sad, really. Although I want to call up, there was a PlayStation and Xbox game called Aggressive Inline, and uh, for the listeners, just just Google image this. It has the most early 2000s looking cover <laughs> Of any object ever created. Um, and I think that's right. I think that's yeah, right. I mean, that's just science. It's it's really scientifically proven at this point. So another uh, interesting early X game sport was street luge, which so I have questions about the existence of regular luge. Street luge seems uh, terrible and just a bad, bad idea. So true street luge riders lie down on a sled a sled type thing and ride feet first down a hill, which I guess is better than it's skeleton, right? That's face first in the, uh, yeah, I believe terrible. So. Worst where you've ever. like got the lunch tray and <laughs> yeah. you're just hurtling down yep. ice. I love how like, yeah, you're, you're saying that regular luge, which is like throwing yourself down an icy chute is somehow acceptable and sane and riding down a street, a paved street, on a street luge is somehow like way worse. Okay, hold on, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, you take a sled on snow and ice. That's the purpose of a sled. You don't need a sled on ground. <laughs> that defeats the whole. Well, also well, it's not like, transportation, Jeff. <laughs> well, it was. <laughs> but all the win, all the weird Winter Olympic sports, for the most part, have an origin and a thing people used to do. Like. Maybe people used to cross-country ski and then shoot things. That's what they do up in Norway in olden times, and they made a sport of it. So it's a weird sport, but it's not completely contrived. Well, this isn't contrived either. This was a bunch of surfer-skater-type dudes in the 90s in California that were like, wouldn't it be dope if we rode down a hill at high speed like it was a luge. That's the like definition of contrived. <laughs> they were like, hey. <laughs> they did it we're because bored. of how bitching it was. <laughs> but luge, okay, so the difference, the reason street I will not luge, have you besmirch the memory of Biker Sherlock like this. That <laughs> was an actual guy's name. Uh, so that was at the X Games from 1997 to 2001. It was often... Uh, stage with many people racing at one time which again so terrible <laughs> and just i'm okay with that one going going away another fun sport was sky surfing that was at the x games from 1995 to 2000 in sky surfing a trained skydiver dives out of a plane with a board attached to their feet the flyer then does spins and flips and this is performed in a two-person tandem one surfer one cameraman, because if it doesn't happen being filmed, does it happen? Did it really happen? Yeah, it doesn't matter. No. So what's great about this is that the points, the scoring, 75% of the score is based on the movement of the sky surfer. Which you would think would be 100%. You would think that. 25% is the cameraman and the technique and how well they, what they is it, capture. Like the, comp- the, the composition of his shots. Get that Did he shot. remember the rule of thirds <laughs> exactly. as he's... Right. <laughs> exactly. So that is amazing. Um, very sad that that doesn't exist anymore. I also love the idea that this sport was created by someone who was bored from jumping out of Right. Planes. That was not extreme enough. This is really getting lame <laughs> just floating down to the ground. Let's do something else. Another X game sport was bungee jumping. Contestants would make three jumps while they were and they would be judged on their flips and spins and tricks. Tony Hawk is a big fan. He wants bungee jumping back. In the X Games? In the X Games. All right. 
likes that 90s right on tony (laughs) oh my god (laughs) though okay so the freestyle bungee jumping people do things while jumping including like being on things like a kayak literally there's video of someone bungee jumping while sitting in a kayak why? Do they think they'll like land softly in the water at <laughs> the can't. bottom of the jump? I, I, this is just so foreign to me. I didn't know you could do other things while you were bungee jumping. I thought you just fell. It's like saying there's a competition for roller coaster riding. One more funny former X Game sport barefoot water ski jumping, which is just a lot of adjectives before the word jumping and is confusing to me. So. You're barefoot water skiing, and that requires the water skier to travel faster than normal behind a boat, which I didn't know that that was a thing. It would seem to me that that would slow you down, but apparently not. Fun fact, my dad used to do that. That is? Yeah. So why? He went, he went footing. <laughs> that's what they call it. that's what they called yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very Georgia thing. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm really delving. Like, I got the NASCAR, Chase yeah. Elliott. So it's, it's it's a fitting episode. So so why? Well, I think it's uh, I don't know. I actually literally cannot tell you. I think it was easier to kind of do things like turn around. I mean, he didn't do jumps, but sort of you know you would be riding going forward, and then you'd turn around and ride going backwards, and then you'd kind of do like a little spin as you were kind of doing it. You couldn't really do that as as readily on skis, and oh, so it, it offered a degree of freedom. But I don't, I didn't know about this whole like jumping. I knew about wakeboarding. That to me was like a cool version of jumping behind a moving boat uh, while while holding onto a tether but i didn't know that you could do it while uh while barefoot (laughs) it is fascinating i do i feel like the point of all of these games is like what if normal thing but with more stuff because it's extreme right how else do you make something extreme i also love that this originated in florida where else could this have originated apparently georgia was the other option well yeah those are the two options (laughs) the first time i went water skiing as a small child it was very traumatic it wasn't even water skiing, just point of order. No one's going to fact check me on this, but I'm going to fact check myself. It was like kneeboarding, you know, like where you don't actually stand. And I just fell immediately. But no one had instructed me that you have to let go of the rope. So I just proceeded to get dragged holding on to the rope by a boat like it was like the John Candy movie, Great Outdoors, um, until eventually, uh, you know, I think I, I I think I just let go because I was being dragged by a motorboat, <laughs> and uh, that was embarrassing. <laughs> so I, I never really took to it after that. <laughs> Were you injured? In no, that no, but it, it wasn't enjoyable. Like you could be. <laughs> I've just got a very clear image of that, and I'm. I follow like instructions. It. No one said let go of the rope. Maybe they thought it was obvious. Maybe they thought I was observing the other people doing it and them dropping the rope. But it, that that. It got lost in translation. They should have known, I feel like, at that point that you were not observing them. (laughs) Well, so which of these uh, former extreme sports would we like to see back in the X Games? Well, I think for me, the answer is clearly street luge. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go with street luge. Although I'm I'm sort of into sky surfing. I think the 25% points going to the cameraman's technique is a little problematic. But... (laughs) You think it should be more? Uh, no, I just... It should be 50-50 split, yeah, straight yeah, down the middle. Seems like We're a, both jumping here, jeez. This seems like a weird combination. But, you know, I can I can overlook that and get into sky surfing. I want the barefoot water ski jumping, but only Jeff's version of it. Where you just So, it. yeah, you're not, not allowed not, under you can't any circumstances go. to let go. <laughs> I might have been, you know, cutting edge and designing a future X Games <laughs> yeah. <a> boat drag. <laughs> Whoever <laughs> could last the longest. <laughs> we'll get that in there next year. 2020 X Games are bust. <laughs> Mitchie Brusco, you got your new sport. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's a really good place to end this week's all rabbit hole edition of Hot Takedown. <laughs> that was a blast. I, I love rabbit holes. They're so much fun. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people find us. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.